Amen. I'll never forget when my daughter Natalie brought a young boy home that she said she wanted to marry. As a child, she had brought home several stray cats. And in my mind, this was similar, yet far more serious. This boy was fresh out of college. His most significant job had been delivering pizzas. And yet now he's going to become the provider for my daughter and my future grandkids? He needed to be properly vetted. And so for the next year, I spent my time examining my prospective son-in-law. I left no stone unturned. I had a checklist longer than the Jiffy Lube. A 40-point inspection. I wasn't going to entrust the leadership and care of my daughter to just anybody. This man had to pass muster. And this is how God feels about His church. The church is the darling of heaven. It is the envy of the angels. It's the very bride of Christ. And God isn't going to turn over the leadership of His daughter to just anyone. He expects pastors and church leaders to possess exemplary character. They too need to pass muster. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, God gives us a Jiffy Lube-like inspection for church leaders, a character checklist. Well, verse 1 begins. This is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. The New Testament uses three titles for church leaders, bishop, elder, pastor. In Acts chapter 20 and in 1 Peter 5, you'll find all three titles used interchangeably for the same person. Elder refers to the man himself, his maturity. Pastor or shepherd illustrates his method. He is a shepherd of the flock. And bishop is the Greek word episkopos. Epi means over, and scopus means to scope out, to look closely. Thus, an episcopos oversees. This speaks of what the leader does, his ministry. He views the big picture, he oversees the spiritual health of the church. There are three ingredients that factor into the qualifications for church leaders in this chapter. Gender, giftedness, and character. And as with the person who married my daughter, gender and character are the most vital of the three. Yet sadly, today's church stresses the giftedness of church leaders while often it compromises on character. You know, people are often frustrated that the New Testament doesn't say more about the structure of church government. We tend to be dogmatic on leadership structure, but lenient on the leader's character, whereas the New Testament is just the opposite. It's flexible on structure, but unrelenting on good character. You can have the best possible structure, but it's worthless if it's filled with ungodly people. This is why Paul has much to say about the caliber of our leaders. He begins here in verse 2. A bishop then must be blameless. Just because a pastor preaches well, he can't be a crook or cuss out the umpires at the church softball game or hide from his creditors or cheat on his income tax. 
or neglect his wife and kids. He has to live in a way that earns people's respect. Reminds me of the pastor who embezzled $25,000 of the church's funds. One of the elders commented, we need to find him and get him back over here so he can work off the money he owes us. I think he missed the point. Here, a bishop must be blameless, not sinless. Nobody can be sinless, but blameless. We all slip up in sin, but we should repent immediately and address the damage we've done. The Greek word translated blameless means nothing to take hold of. There should be no glaring, blatant issues in my life that an outsider can point his finger at and accuse me or the message that I preach. Obviously, there was much in Paul's past to incriminate him, but his past had been dealt with by the blood of Jesus, and now his life was a testimony to God's amazing grace. For a pastor, the question becomes, are there current issues in my life that will discredit the message I preach or the Savior I serve or the church that I represent? Is my life blameless? One day, as St. Francis was walking down the street, a young boy reached out from the bushes and he tugged on his cloak. He pleaded, please, sir, be as good as we think you are. We need leaders who are blameless. The next qualification is the husband of one wife. Now, this is a debated phrase. One group says that it was a ban on polygamous holding office in the church. Polygamy or multiple wives was popular among first century pagans. Other folks insist that it incriminates persons who've been divorced and remarried, essentially eliminating a divorced person from serving as an elder. I don't think either interpretation gets to the heart of what Paul wants to communicate. A literal translation of the phrase would be rendered, a one-woman man. Paul's concern isn't as much about a man's marital status as it is his attitude toward women and sexual purity. A man may have been married for 50 years and yet still not be a one-woman man. He's had women on the side or a fascination with pornography or he's a flirt or his eyes just wander to other women. His thoughts and desires are obviously not focused on one woman. Whereas a divorcee who repents of any wrongdoing in his previous marriage, he's renewing his mind. He's now deeply devoted to the woman with whom he's remarried. This is the fellow who qualifies as a one-woman man. Bible commentary Kenneth Wiest puts it this way, We speak of the Airedale as a one-man dog. It is his nature to become attached to only one man. Since character is emphasized by the Greek construction, it's the bishop's nature to isolate and centralize his love. And this also has implications for a church leader who's single. Though he's unmarried, he still needs to be a one-woman man. It's wrong for Pastor Casanova to be playing the field. It'll disrupt unity in the church, you bet. He should wait patiently for the one woman that God has for him. So here's more of the checklist. Temperate means self-controlled. It's the opposite of having a temper. A temperate man is a leader with his emotions in check. Sober-minded. 
This is the man who thinks clearly and keeps issues in perspective. We call him level-headed, of good behavior. Here's a man who lives an orderly life, hospitable. The word literally means to love a stranger. An elder should be friendly to newcomers and able to teach, maybe not in front of a crowd of 5,000, but certainly a group of small believers. He should feel comfortable in teaching and instructing them. And then, not given to wine. In verse 8, the deacon should not be given to much wine, but an elder needs to abstain completely. See, a pastor or an elder is in a decision-making position and could be called on at a moment's notice. A leader's senses should never be dulled or his mind cloudy or foggy from the influence of alcohol. In addition, we're told, not violent. A church leader doesn't push people around. He's not a spiritual bully. He doesn't force or manipulate others to get his way. A pastor or an elder understands how to lead people with love and gentle persuasion. He's a peacemaker. And not greedy for money. A pastor needs to feed the flock, not fleece the flock. He shouldn't love money. Once a toddler was playing in the carpet in the den floor, he found a little quarter, right, stuck in the carpet. And so the little toddler picked it up and put it in his mouth, as little toddlers do, and accidentally swallowed the quarter. Well, the dad saw what happened, and he yelled to his wife in the other room, Quick, honey, call the pastor. His wife replied, You mean 911? He said, No, the pastor, he can get money out of anybody. Not greedy for money. In addition, an overseer should be gentle, not quarrelsome. You know, it's been said a troublemaker is a guy who rocks the boat then convinces everyone else there's a storm at sea. An argumentative, combative personality disqualifies a man from spiritual leadership. And not covetous or envious of other people, envious even of other pastors or churches or ministries. Then verse 4, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. And this is a key. Does his wife and kids respect his authority? If a pastor can't win the respect of those who know him best, you have to question whether he's living respectably. And when it comes to a pastor's kids, remember they are kids. I tried to shield my kids from unfair expectations. Sometimes those unfair expectations get hurled at pastor's kids. It's not whether a pastor's kids will rebel. They're sinners. All sinners rebel. It's how a pastor responds in the wake of their rebellion. And often coming down too hard is just as foolish as not coming down hard enough. A wise pastor slash dad knows that a balance is required. Here Paul says that a pastor's ability to manage his household is an indicator of how well he'll manage the house of God. Verse 5, For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Being both a pastor and a father, I'm often struck by the similarities of the two. Both require the combination of a strong hand and a sensitive heart. Pastors and dads have to rule or take charge, but they also have to love, or take care. 
Family leadership is good training for spiritual leadership, and I found spiritual leadership is good training for family leadership. A pastor should be good at both. You know, it's interesting. You can neglect your kids and your wife and still be a good doctor, still be a good lawyer, but not a good pastor. If you don't lead your family well, you can't lead God's family. Years ago, it dawned on me, church members are fickle. They leave the church at the drop of a hat, sometimes for the pettiest reasons. And yet at the end of the day, when the smoke clears, my wife and kids will still be my wife and kids. That's why a wise pastor prioritizes his family. And he shouldn't be a novice, we're told. Lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Often a new believer will win a few early victories and he goes straight to the frontal lobe. His head gets inflated. He mistakenly thinks that the power is his. He's wrong. And if the novice is a leader, when he falls, innocent people around him will be dragged down with him. This is why a newbie needs time to mature before he leads. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. Boy, the snare of the devil. It's a progression. Oh, puff him up, set him up for failure, knock knock the pedestal out from under him, and then he'll be buried under a mound of condemnation. When you rush a a new believer into leadership too soon, you play right into the hands of the devil. The church needs seasoned men with character, not just clever character. I'm often reminded of a scene from the movie Eight Men Out. It's about the 1919 Black Sox scandal. Eight Chicago White Sox players through the World Series. And there's a scene when the great baseball player, Shoeless Joe Jackson, he's leaving the building and he gets swarmed by reporters. They're shouting, what did you do, Joe? Were you in on the fix? And suddenly a little boy, 10 years old, His voice rises above the din of the crowd. Everyone else grows silent. The boy looks at his hero and he says, Say it ain't so, Joe. Say it ain't so. Joe hangs his head and turns and walks away in shame. I don't ever want a little boy from this church to look at me and say, Say it ain't so, Pastor Sandy. Say it ain't so. Please pray for me. I'm on the list this coming Saturday. But I hope you'll pray for me more than just this Saturday. I hope you'll pray for me every day. I need your prayers. And in verse 8, likewise deacons. Once a pastor and deacon, they went out deer hunting. When they arrived at the usual spot, they found a no trespassing sign. Well, that's when the pastor remembered That old man Jones's farm was just down the road. The deacon balked. He said, man, he said, that Jones, he's a mean, ornery cuss. Pastor told him not to worry. Well, when they rolled up into the yard, the deacon sat in the truck while the pastor went up to the house to ask about hunting. Well, when the door opened, there was Mr. Jones. Pastor, nice to see you. Man, you're our favorite pastor. Whenever we're in town, we slip into your church. What can I do for you? Obviously, permission to hunt was no problem. But as the pastor walked away, the farmer asked him, he said, Pastor, he says, 
I've got a problem. I've got a crippled old horse down by the barn that needs to be put down, put out of his misery. I'm really fond of him, and I just can't bring myself to pull the trigger. Will you shoot him for me when you go out to hunt? Well, as the pastor walked back to the truck, he thought that he'd have a little fun with his deacon. He jerked the rifle off the rack, and he snarled. He says, nobody's going to talk to me like that. He aimed his gun right at the horse, and blam! Horse dropped to the ground. Suddenly he heard, blam, blam. He spun around and there was the deacon with smoke pouring out the barrel of his shotgun. The deacon yells at him, come on, pastor, you got his horse and I got two of his cows. Let's get out of here. (laughs) Elders and deacons make an interesting team, do they not? Elders look out after the spiritual needs of the church. Well, deacons handle the physical needs. The Greek word translated deacon means servant. Elder is a role of authority and oversight. Deacon is a post for service. I call our deacons the designated doers. In the book of Acts, the elders were chosen by Paul and the existing elders, whereas in Acts chapter 6, the deacons were chosen by fellow members of the congregation. And Paul tells us that the deacons must be reverent, or that is, serious about the things of God. These need to be serious men, not double-tongued or loose-lipped. You know, gossip has no place as a deacon in the leadership of the church. Not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. All deacons need to be proven before they're appointed. You know, the golden rule on selecting church leaders is this. It's much easier to hire them than it is to fire them. That's why they need to be tested and vetted first. And then verse 11, likewise, their wives. And here's an example of how Bible versions can mix up interpretation with translation. The Greek text literally reads, likewise the women. The King James assumes that Paul was addressing a deacon's wife. Maybe, but there is another possibility. Other New Testament passages suggest that there was a female order of deacons in the church. In fact, Romans chapter 16 verse 1 calls Phoebe servant of the church. It's the same word deacon. Deaconesses are sisters who serve the needs of other women. Often in church life, situations arise that need a feminine touch. And it's nice to have a group of deaconesses available to meet those special needs. I like what teacher J. Vernon McGee says about this verse. He believed the reason women today clamor for roles in the church that are reserved for men is because they've been denied their own rightful role. The role of deaconess is an important role in the church. And here Paul lays out the character of a deaconess. He says they must be reverent, not slanderers. In the Greek it reads, not she-devils. Devil means slanderer. I heard of a lady who had a great way to combat gossip. Whenever she was approached with a juicy tidbit, she would insist that she and the gossip go directly to the subject of the gossip to see if the accusation was true. 
I doubt anyone approached her twice with a maligning word. Hey, before you say anything about anybody, make it pass through three gates. Put it to a test. Is this true? Is it true? Is it needful? It might be true, but it might not be needful. And is it kind? If it's not kind, it's not to be said. Is it true? Is it needful? Is it kind? If not, keep it to yourself. Well, the deaconesses should be temperate, faithful in all things. Women in leadership should be self-controlled. Reminds me of the fellow who said of his wife, my wife should be in Congress. She keeps bringing bills to the house. (laughs) A temperate woman controls her spending. In verse 12, Paul goes back to deacons. He says, let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own houses well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. In other words, a deacon who serves faithfully gains people's respect and earns influence to serve more boldly. You remember in Acts chapter 6, a deacon named Stephen was waiting on tables, serving in practical ways. Then in the next chapter, the same man, Stephen, is preaching the gospel and working miracles. Apparently, deacon is a role where folks can prove themselves and can then move on to do even greater things for God. Well, verse 14, these things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but I am delayed. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. And here's the theme of 1 Timothy, how we're to conduct ourselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Where else can you go today? To find the truth of God. The government. The media. The school system. These institutions no longer support biblical truth. They often try to undermine it. There's only one place where people can go today to find God's truth. And that is the church of the living God. We are the pillar and ground of the truth. Hey, if you think of the gospel as an explosion of grace and truth then think of the church of our Lord Jesus as ground zero. Well, Paul writes in verse 16, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Godliness is like this enchanting, mysterious, beautiful woman. She has a mystique about her. The more you get to know her, the more you realize you'll never figure her out. As Blaise Pascal put it, I love God because I know Him. I adore Him because I cannot comprehend Him. Philosopher Mortimer Adler once made a comment. He became a Christian at age 82, and he explained why. He says, I believe Christianity is the only logical, consistent faith in the world, but there are elements in it that can only be described as mystery. My chief reason for choosing Christianity was that the mysteries were incomprehensible. What's the point of revelation if we can figure God out ourselves? And here Paul summarizes the gospel's mystique, its mystery. 
He begins, God was manifested in the flesh. Have you thought about it? Can you imagine? The ancient of days became a child of time. The infinite became an infant. The gospel begins with amazement and wonder. And then Jesus was justified in the spirit. He worked miracles, but not of his own hand. His power came from God's spirit. He operated as we should by faith. He was seen by angels. Jesus often received angelic assistance. But what's more amazing is that for the 30 plus years he walked the earth, every angel in the cosmos stopped in their tracks and marveled at Jesus. He was preached among the Gentiles. This is truly an unexpected twist. The Bible was written by Jews, for Jews, about Jews, to save the Jews. Yet immediately the king of the Jews was preached among the Gentiles. And believed on in the world. A man who never traveled more than 100 miles from his own hometown has become Lord in every corner of this planet. And he was received up in glory. What began so inconspicuously with peasant parents in a backwoods village called Nazareth, in a Bethlehem stable, in the womb of a young maiden, crescendoed in the clouds. The risen Lord ascended to glory. The Son of God shows up in the womb of a virgin, then goes up to heaven from a hill outside Jerusalem, from arrival to ascension. Great is the mystery. And then chapter 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy. Now in the first three chapters of Paul's letter, he tells Timothy to use the Bible biblically, to stand up for sound doctrine, to fight the fight of faith. He says that elders should be apt to teach, and he calls the church the pillar and ground of the truth. Why all this emphasis on right doctrine? Because the closer we get to the last days, false teaching is going to abound. You know, it's a shock to a new Christian to realize that not every so-called Bible teacher really teaches the Bible. Some speak lies in hypocrisy. Realize not everything labeled spiritual is necessarily godly or biblical. I mean, walk into the religion and spirituality section at a Barnes & Noble bookstore and you'll find by books, books by Billy Graham and the Dalai Lama on the same shelf. Today's world is fascinated with all things spiritual. Yet Paul tells Timothy here that there are deceiving spirits. There are spirits who spew demons, I mean, spew demons that spew doctrine, evil doctrine. I'll say it right the third time. They're demons that spew bad doctrine. <laughs> you know, when Satan fell, he took a third of the angels with him, they joined his revolt. Those angels are spiritual, but they're deceiving spirits who inspire false doctrine. Their goal is is for us to depart from the faith. And Satan has an advantage in this battle. He lies shamelessly. 
Demonically inspired teachers tell people what they want to hear or what they would like for them to hear. Unlike God, Satan has no obligation to the truth. And this is why Paul says of these demonically inspired teachers having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. They've lost any integrity or fidelity to the truth. Their conscience has been cauterized, desensitized. These teachers are no longer governed by sacred scripture, let alone God's Holy Spirit. They're governed by political correctness, not theological accuracy. And in the next few verses, Paul provides a rundown of what these false teachers emphasize. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. From food to sex, the false teacher forbids what God allows and calls good. Mormons don't drink coffee. But God created coffee beans. Seventh-day Adventists are vegetarian. But God created meat, beef, and sausage, and bacon, and pork barbecue, and those wings over at Atlanta's Best. You can tell what I'm thinking about. Roman Catholicism denies its priests the opportunity to marry and enjoy healthy sexual intimacy. And it puts an undue pressure on the priests. Man, when God created beans and meat and sex, he said that it was good. And he hasn't changed his mind. You please God, not through abstinence, but by thanking God for his many blessings and then using them according to his prescriptions for his glory. Holiness isn't about what I can sacrifice for God. It's about what he has sacrificed for me. Biblical spirituality involves the work of Jesus on the cross, the work of the Spirit in my heart, not self-deprivation. You know, back in Colossians, we studied a heretical doctrine known as Gnosticism, or at least the seeds of Gnosticism. It taught strange forms of asceticism. Asceticism is the attempt to please God and grow spiritually through one's own self-denial. Yet Paul couldn't have disagreed more. We become more spiritual, not through denying God-given pleasures, but through faith in Jesus and the Holy Spirit at work on my behalf. You know, a quick survey of history, and you'll discover how often these verses have been overlooked. Christians have tried to grow spiritually through fleshly techniques. In the 4th century AD, monasticism became a popular means of seeking spirituality. Monks retreated to monasteries, thinking they could be more spiritual. Some lived in the forest and ate only herbs and roots. Some wore loincloths made of thorns. In other words, the more you could suffer or torture yourself, the more spiritual you could be. One monk named Simeon Stylite set the standard for extremism. He actually lived atop a column for 37 years. He bowed 1,244 times a day. Simeon thought the more he suffered, the more spiritual it made him. He was wrong. Even today, there are Christians with the mistaken idea that self-deprivation is the key to spiritual maturity. That the more I do without, the more spiritual I'll become. 
It's the old I don't smoke, drink, cuss, or chew, or run with women who do kind of attitude. But just keeping your nose clean doesn't alter your heart. You can live in a cave and eat nothing but communion wafers and still be full of lust and pride and hate. What makes a person holy is not what we do without, but what we take in from God. I grow in God by receiving His nature and His pardon and His peace and His love and His joy and His power. Jesus said in Matthew 15, It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a man. Real righteousness is a matter of the heart. Christianity is not me trying to clean up my act. It's me trusting God to make me new. Religion conforms us from the outside in, whereas God's Spirit transforms us from the inside out. In contrast to self-deprivation, Verse 4 encourages us to enjoy what God created. He says, For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. You know what that means? That means once I thank God for it, eating a bowl of chocolate ice cream can be an act of worship. That's wonderful. Hallelujah. I've heard it put, the world says, I live to pleasure as I die to God. The aesthetic says, I live to God as I die to pleasure. But the Christian says, I live to pleasure as I live to God. Christians are free to enjoy the pleasures that God has created. A good cup of hot coffee or a juicy piece of meat. Or a glass of wine in moderation. Or sexual relations with my spouse. As long as my participation doesn't cause intoxication. As long as neither I nor others are made to stumble. I can have at it. Paul said elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 6. All things are lawful for me. But I will not be brought under the power of any. Certainly much depends on context. You know, sex and alcohol and tobacco are often abused in our society. They're the sacraments of people who worship only pleasure. As with the elder that we discussed early, there are cases in which abstinence is prudent. If one's addicted, if one has a propensity toward alcoholism, certainly abstinence is the course of action. It's wise to avoid alcohol, but it doesn't make you more pleasing to God if you do. Paul is saying that God has given us meat and drink to enjoy in the proper context. The Jews thought that their abstinence made them more righteous, but not in God's eyes. God is the author of all life's pleasures, and we're free to participate in them if our doing so enhances our gratitude for God and our dedication to Him. And then we're told in verse 6, If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. People need to be instructed in God's word. Christianity is a teaching enterprise. A good minister is all about good doctrine. He says, but reject profane and old wives' fables. Astonishingly, Even in our high-tech society, 
Did you know that 20 million Americans carry a rabbit's foot or some other good luck charm in their pocket? Though it wasn't very lucky for the rabbit. <laughs> Paul says, reject profane and old wives' tales. Paul encourages Timothy not to trust his destiny to silly superstitions, but rather exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things. Though physical exercise can firm up your thighs, it takes spiritual exercise, prayer, and Bible study, and service, and fellowship. This is what firms up your faith. And that profits much more. You know, health clubs, they work off a business model where they sell far more memberships than their facility can accommodate. You know why? Because they know that after a few weeks, most people aren't going to come back and visit. Exercise is hard work. And godly exercise is still exercise. You know, it's been said, you don't stop exercising because you grow old. You grow old because you stop exercising. And if your Christian life has grown old, if you've lost your vigor, you've probably stopped exercising spiritually. How's your prayer life? Have you been reading God's Word? Have you been in fellowship and studying the Scriptures? Hey, we need to exercise ourselves to godliness. And here's why spiritual exercise is so valid. He says, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Physical fitness has short-term benefits, but spiritual exercise shapes you up for all eternity. I would much rather have a sculpted spirit and a bulging faith that lasts for eternity than I would a well-toned corpse. Verse 10. For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. These things command and teach. And then verse 12. Let no one despise your youth. And at the time, this was a problem for Timothy. He was probably in his 20s. And this was an issue. Jewish priests didn't begin their ministries until they were 30 years old. And so to many folks, Timothy was just a kid. You know, when I was younger, I ran into this same kind of resistance. There were some people who refused to come to Calvary Chapel because they wanted an older pastor. I'll never forget Mrs. Aliman. She was this cute little Cuban lady. And on my 30th birthday, she came up to me. She was so excited. She said, Pastor, Pastor, I'm so glad you've turned 30. We no longer have a young pastor. <laughs> I didn't know whether to smile or cry. <laughs> Paul tells Timothy not to be intimidated by those who frown on his youth. Spiritual maturity has little to do with natural age. You can be young and possess great spiritual depth, or you can be an old man and a spiritual baby at the same time. What matters is time spent with God and in His Word. Well, Paul says Timothy needs to forget what people think and get on with leading those who want to be led. He tells him, But be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. And all spiritual leaders, first and foremost, should be an example. 
He says, till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Timothy needs to read and study his Bible. You know, the old adage is true. Leaders are readers. And then verse 14, do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. God gives us spiritual gifts. He anointed Timothy through the elders of the church. They prayed and prophesied over him. But you have to use the gifts that you've been given. You remember in the parable of the talents, the man with one talent had it taken away from him because he buried it and hid his talent. With ministry gifts, it's either use them or lose them. Then verse 15, meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Paul expects Timothy to progress. It's a sin when a pastor stops trying to get better at his craft. You know, imparting God's word is a vital task that deserves my best effort. I hope that I'm growing better and better as the years go on. And finally, verse 16, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Boy, a pastor juggles a lot of balls. Hospital visits and counseling and administration and finances and all the rest. But the one ball that a pastor cannot afford to fumble is the teaching of sound doctrine. The salvation of souls and spiritual, the spiritual growth of God's people depends on a pastor's faithful parsing of the scriptures. The Bible needs to be every pastor's pressing priority.